The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. We're looking at Luke chapter 9, uh, verses 7 through 9. I want to read those verses just to remind you what happened last week where we left off. Jesus has been in a public ministry since age 30. The entirety of that time period in his public ministry is probably around three and a half years, the best that we can determine. So he probably died when he was 30 year, 33 years old. The Gospel of Luke covers much of his ministry in Galilee up in the northern area. The, the temple in Jerusalem is the headquarters. That was down south in Judea. Jerusalem was the capital of Israel. That's where the temple was. Uh, the Sanhedrin, the most influential Jewish rulers and leaders, and Jesus was up north in Galilee, and that's where he is born and raised, grew up, and probably most of his public ministry for that three and a half years was in his home area, a region of Galilee. And we saw so far in the Gospel of Luke that since Luke chapter 4, he got baptized, it says, by John, then he began his ministry, And then immediately he did a Judean ministry, did some miracles there, among other things. First miracle, as a matter of fact. And then he went back to his hometown, and he's been ministering in Galilee for over a year now. And that entire Galilean ministry will span almost a year and a half, 18 months. So Luke keeps giving summary updates that uh, Jesus is going all throughout Galilee in all the villages preaching the good news and the gospel of the kingdom, doing miracles uh, and healings and casting out demons everywhere he goes. And so this is now in Luke chapter 9. This has been going on for over a year. Josephus tells us there were at least 200 plus little villages in the region of Galilee, 200 villages, so it was very densely populated because it's not a really large area demographically or it's about 50 miles by 25 miles. So to fit 200 plus villages and towns, didn't have to go far to get to the next town of people. So for over a year, Jesus has been doing ministry, preaching and teaching, doing miracles. The the word is spreading. Actually, the word started to spread from the very beginning, from the get-go, because his miracles miracles were so astounding. Unprecedented, people had never seen it before. Plus also his teaching was like people had never heard before. It was authoritative. He claimed to be directly from God, the Son of God, the Messiah, fulfillment of the Old Testament. This was new stuff. This was exciting to the people and troubling to the Jewish leaders. So from the get-go, his first sermon he ever preached in his hometown of Nazareth, uh, he turned it upside down and they tried to kill him. And so now it's been over a year. He's still persisting to minister in Nazareth and Galilee, all the surrounding areas. And even from his first sermon and miracle, it says, that uh, the word spread broadly everywhere, and everybody was hearing about this man, Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter. And so here at Luke, just to bring you up to speed, it's been over a year and that Jesus has been teaching. He's been collecting apostles along the way, but also disciples. And he didn't collect all 12 apostles at the same time. And for that time that Jesus was preaching, teaching, doing miracles, for good, almost for a year and a half, His disciples were not preaching, as far as we know. And his disciples weren't doing miracles. They were watching. They were following, watching, learning. And then when he finally chose 12 apostles out of his hundreds of disciples, he began to train them even more. 
And then a few months goes by, and then finally, he gives them a short-term internship. Short-term local mission opportunity. And that was last week, where it says he sent out the 12 apostles with very specific directions, clear parameters. It was short-term. They went out in twos. And for the first time, Jesus had been ministering now for two years. And for the first time, the apostles got to try it themselves. And they were commanded to go out into the villages, preach the gospel, call people for repentance, point people to Jesus, not themselves. It wasn't the Peter didn't start up the international Peter ministry. No, it's all about doing what John the Baptist is. One thing, pointing people to Jesus. That's what a faithful minister is supposed to do. And that's what they did, those 12 men. Keeping in mind, I didn't mention this last week, but Judas was one of those 12 apostles. Did Jesus get fooled, snookered? Nope, that was part of God's plan. Was Judas a believer and then lost his salvation? Nope. Jesus said he was a devil from the beginning. Well, how did that happen? Well, it was predicted in the Old Testament. Well, how did that happen? It was predicted by God in the book of Zechariah, 500 years before it ever happened. It was predicted in the Psalms, hundreds and hundreds of years before it ever happened. That was God's plan. So Judas was no surprise. And so for the first time, the 12 apostles are going out in twos, and they're speaking in the name of Jesus. They've never had this experience before, and they're probably surprised because it works. In the name of Jesus, rise, and boom. People are rising from the dead. They're casting out demons. They're doing all kinds of miracles. They're preaching, teaching. People are probably getting excited. Maybe they're starting to gain a little bit of an enthusiastic following. Things are going well. We don't know how long this ministry, this short-term missions trip went on. Could have been weeks. Could have been a few months. Not sure about the chronology. But it was a successful short-term internship. Even Judas, apparently, had the ability to cast out demons and do miracles. How do you do that? By the power of God. Jesus allowed him to do it, even though he wasn't a believer. And by the way, uh, the other 11 apostles, they thought Judas was a believer at this time. They had no idea. No idea. So look at chapter uh, 9 of Luke, verse 10, just picking up where I just left off, just in recounting the context here before I go to our passage of the day. Uh, so in verses 1 through 6 is that short-term internship. And so Jesus says, go, and they go, and they depart. And they're going throughout all the villages up there in Galilee to cover all 200-plus towns. And then in verse 10, then you skip those verses, and then you come to verse 10, and it says, when the apostles returned from their short-term missions trip, they gave an account. They gave a report to Jesus, the master. They went back to home base. Probably had a mission Sunday or a mission Saturday in the synagogue. And they gave an account to Jesus of all that they had done. Taking uh, them with him, he withdrew. But in, in the other two Gospels, it says they were excited. They, they were just rejoicing. Man, the, even the demons were subject to our word, Jesus. Can you believe it? He's like, yeah, that's what I told you was going to happen. That's what I commanded you to do. So they were absolutely thrilled. So if you notice there, uh, the story that I began last week ended in verse 6 and picks up in verse 10. So I skipped verses 7, 8, and 9. So if you're just reading this in your devotions one day in Luke and you're going, I'm going to read Luke 9. And then you read the whole chapter and you get to verse 7, 8, and 9. You're like, whoa, that's weird. Uh, why is Luke saying that? That seems out of context. How did that get in there? 
He was talking about the 12 apostles, and all of a sudden he's mentioning Herod. So let's read the passage before us today. Luke chapter 9, 7 through 9. So the apostles in verse 6 depart on their short-term missions trip. And then immediately, verse 7, it says, Now, so that's a transition. Now, could mean a lot of things. Now, here's something else that happened, either before, later, or simultaneously. And actually, we know from the other two Gospels. Now, at about the same time. That's why it's in here. Now, at about the same time. The apostles are celebrating and rejoicing. This is fantastic. Something horrible just happened that had a direct impact on Jesus. His beloved cousin, John the Baptist, that the Bible says was one of the most humble people that were ever born and lived. Godly man. As far as we know, from Luke chapter 3, verses 18, 19, 20, that was the last we heard about John the Baptist. His preaching ministry ended abruptly when in courage and being led by God, he was preaching the gospel, preparation for the coming of the Messiah. He was also calling people to repent. His ministry was a ministry of repentance. What does that mean? That means turn. Turn from your wicked ways and turn to God. That's what repentance means. Repentance means owning up and recognizing your sin. Own up to your sin. Recognize you're sinful. That separates you from God. That condemns you from God. And it needs to be made right. That's repentance. It's a willful, deliberate, conscious choosing to acknowledge that you are sinful. And it's also a deliberate choice to turn away from your sin and turn to God. That's repentance. That was the nature of John's ministry. John the Baptist's ministry was completely and wholly a confrontational or negative ministry. He, he wasn't preaching warm fuzzies. It was a ministry of repentance, pointing the finger. Here comes the wrath of God. You are all sinful. You need to turn. Here comes the Messiah. He is right here. You need to turn to him. And the crowds were coming, feeling guilty, being baptized. And there was an entire crowd of thousands, because that's how many Pharisees there were in Palestine at the time, thousands the Gospels tell us that none of the Pharisees got baptized by John the Baptist. That speaks of the utter quintessential nature of, or the epitome of their arrogance. Oh, we're the religious leaders. We're the experts on the Old Testament. We know Yahweh. They, they wouldn't call him Yahweh. But we know him. We don't need to repent. Who are you, John? We don't even know who you are. We don't know where you came from. We, we don't even know where you were trained. That was their attitude. Not one of the Pharisees got baptized by John, even though all of Israel was coming out to John. And we also saw earlier in Luke that John the Baptist was born six months before Jesus was, and that they were related by blood. They were cousins. And no doubt they knew of each other as they were growing up. And then John the Baptist is the new... Uh, messenger to point out and tend to pave the way of the coming of the Messiah. That was his ministry. His ministry may have lasted about six months. And then after six months of preaching and calling sinners to repentance, he pointed the finger at the most influential leader of the Jewish religion and the Jewish political uh, establishment of the day, and that was Herod. Herod the Tetrarch. There were all kinds of different Herods, but Herod the Tetrarch, also known as Herod Antipas, Herod the Tetrarch, he was the son of Herod the Great, Herod the Great died in 4 BC. 
after ruling for almost four decades. Herod the Great was just a vicious, wicked, corrupt, compromised uh, sinner who converted to Judaism and called himself king of the Jews. And then he died in 4 BC. And then Jesus was probably born in 4 BC. Um, Jesus was born four years before Christ. You know, our calendar's all messed up, just so you know. But that's when we think, we think Jesus was born in 4 BC because that's when Herod the Great died. It's pretty certain. Somebody messed up on the calendar. Anyway, so, and then Herod had all these different sons, most of them illegitimate because he was so compromised. And then one of his sons was, and then his entire kingdom, which was all of Israel, was divided into four. Four. And he gave them to three of his sons and then somebody else. And one of his sons got the area of Galilee up in the north. Galilee and Perea on the other side of the Jordan River. Divided them to four. And that's what tetrarch means. Tetrarch means one-fourth. So he had four tetrarchs. Then, then there was Herod the tetrarch. And he, was, he had the area of Galilee and Perea. As far as we know, since 4 B.C. So Herod the tetrarch, son of Herod the Great, was ruling in Galilee, which also meant he was ruling over Nazareth in Galilee since 4 B.C. until about 39... I mean, sorry. Uh, yeah, 4 B.C. until... 39 AD. So Herod the Tetrarch was ruling over Galilee the entirety of Jesus's life and was also ruling in Galilee the entirety of Jesus's ministry. And he was also ruling the entirety of John the Baptist's ministry. And John the Baptist and Jesus were both from Galilee. And Herod the Tetrarch was not too far different from his father. And even though he had a very small area, he called himself a king. He wasn't a king. He was a, a, a petty, self-centered, compromised, immoral, uh, control freak who had a small plot of land, yet he called himself a king. And he was very jealous like his father, and he was threatened by any other rulers or kings or people who were being esteemed in his area. This was his turf, and he was jealous. But he was also blatantly immoral. But also, he was supposed to be representing formally the Jewish religion up in Galilee, where all those synagogues were. There were dozens, if not hundreds, of synagogues up in all the area of Galilee. And theoretically, Herod the Tetrarch is kind of the, the figurehead of Israelite politics and Jewish religion. And yet he's an utter, total hypocrite. He is committing gross sexual immorality blatantly, out in the open, not even trying to hide it. Violating willingly, knowingly the Mosaic law and the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery. And yet he's supposed to be representing God's true religion and all of the Jews. That's why John the Baptist, called by God to call people to repentance, to acknowledge their sin, and then Herod is committing blatant adultery and incest all at the same time in the middle of John the Baptist's preaching ministry as he's calling people to repent of their sin and obey the Mosaic Covenant. And the person that should have been leading the charge was the leader of Judaism, its politics, and its religion up in the north in Galilee. And that should have been Herod the Tetrarch. But no, instead, he is defying John the Baptist. He didn't get baptized by John the Baptist's ministry. And not only is he not honoring the sacred institution of marriage, he is committing incest, and he's stealing his brother's wife. And that's exactly what he did in the days of John. John found out about it because it was public knowledge. And then John pointed the finger at Herod the Tetrarch, called him to repentance. And that infuriated Herod the Tetrarch. It also embarrassed him in front of the whole community. And you know who got more angry than Herod? Herod's illegitimate wife, Herodias. 
She was furious. And she had one thing in mind. She had a vendetta against John the Baptist. And John got arrested as a result. And we read it, we read it in Luke chapter 3. Herod the Tetrarch shut down John the Baptist's ministry. Arrested him. No, no fair trial. Locked him up. Threw him in a cellar. Or the, a hole in the ground for all we know. And then we fast forward to Luke chapter 9. It could be that John the Baptist has been rotten in this prison for up to two years. We don't know the exact chronology. Anywhere from three months to two years. But I'm pretty certain that another incident regarding John the Baptist happened here at the same time that Jesus, after two years in his ministry, and just commissioned his apostles to do their short-term ministry, and they were very successful. They're coming back and they're celebrating. They're telling Jesus about it. And then Jesus can rejoice with them. And at the same time, Jesus hears the worst news conceivable that his closest friend and the very uh, man of God who is to pave the way for his ministry and his cousin that he loved so dearly, he just found out that John the Baptist was murdered by Herod and beheaded. That's what happened right here. That's why this is in this, this passage where it is. So let's read it, verse 7. Now Herod, now, at the same time, you got this good news, you've got this horrible news. Isn't that life? It is. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening. What do you mean? Well, the ministry of Jesus. This has been going on for two years. Up in Galilee. Remember, uh, Herod, his turf is Galilee. He's supposed to have his ear to the ground to know everything that's going on. Where there's an insurrection, where there's a revolution, where there are protesters, where there's enthusiasm, where there's an incident, who's on the rise, who's the rising star. He's supposed to know all of that. And he did. He had his messengers. And so there's this growing popularity and fascination over this carpenter who's not only preaching and teaching in, in ways never heard before with great authority, but also doing these unprecedented, mind-boggling miracles. We just saw some miracles. He just raised, get this, a synagogue's daughter from the dead. Synagogue? Who's overseeing the synagogues in, in Galilee? Herod the Tetrarch. He's supposed to. What else did Jesus do in the synagogue? Healed people? In the synagogue, in the middle of service. So Herod is hearing about this more and more. So Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening regarding Jesus. And it's, it's growing. It is mounting. Seems like the entire region of Galilee is talking about this man. Can't get away from it. Not only that, we saw in Luke chapter 8 and verse 3, where Jesus was doing miracles. And in, actually in verse 2, it said that Jesus was casting demons out of people. He healed all kinds of women of evil spirits and sicknesses. He healed Mary Magdalene, who was demon-possessed. And he also healed a woman named Joanna, who may have been demon-possessed, or she was deathly ill. Well, who was Joanna? Well, she was married to a guy named Chusa. Well, who was Chusa? He was the manager of Herod's estate. His right-hand businessman, his accountant, his advisor, his counselor, probably that he checks in with every morning. Chusa. And what happened to Chusa's wife? She heard about it. She went to one of those uh, Jesus gatherings. Sat there and listened to, or maybe they, maybe they took her because she was demon-possessed. Or maybe she couldn't walk. And Jesus healed her. And it was undeniable. And Chusa, the husband, found out of it. He was probably happy celebrating. Maybe he mentioned it to Herod. 
That, sir, that, that Jesus thing, I think it's real, sir. Uh, my wife is feeling really well this morning. <laughs> so he can't get away from it. And also, all the while, as far as we know, because of a couple of verses later, it could very well be that Herod actually never had a hands-on glimpse of the ministry of Jesus. Actually never get to saw him do a miracle. Because he had been one, he'd been hearing about it. Man, oh, that's cool. Oh, that miracle, a sign, a wonder, whatever else. And so who is this carpenter who's under my jurisdiction? I want to see him. I want to see a sign. I want to be entertained. Because we know when Christ, during the last week of his life, he finally uh, gets an audience with Jesus, and that's what he demands. Hey, I, want, I heard about you. I want to see a sign. Heard you go in the circus. Give me something. And it said, Jesus answered him not a word. As a matter of fact, Herod grilled him, interrogated him at length, the very eve of Jesus' death in a kangaroo trial. It's totally illegitimate, done in the corner, behind, in dark shadows. It wasn't a trial. It was an illegitimate interrogation, mockery. Herod and his men, they mocked Jesus. And it probably went on for quite some time, and then... The entire time, Jesus answered him not a word. Jesus had deliberately been avoiding Herod for months, maybe even years, and this added to it. Jesus gets word that John the Baptist had just been murdered, finally after rotten in a prison, and Herod, the Tetrarch, who was illegitimately married to Herodias. Herodias had a daughter named Salome. Salome uh, did a dance at a party where they were drinking and carousing and probably an orgy and Herod the Tetrarch was completely come overcome with lust regarding his new stepdaughter and demand and, and asked her I'll give you anything and the stepdaughter said okay she consulted with her mother Herodias who had this vendetta against John the Baptist and then went back to Herod the Tetrarch and said, give me John the Baptist's head on a platter. And it says that Herod the Tetrarch, he hesitated, he had fear because he knew, get this, that John the Baptist was a godly and holy man. And he hesitated, nevertheless, he made a vow and he had to do it. And he had John the Baptist murdered, beheaded, and his head put on a platter and taken to Herodias and her daughter. Well, word got back to Jesus at this very time. And he's overcome with grief. You know he is. He says he has to get away, be by himself. Uh, Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening about Jesus and even, and even his disciples here. And miracles are being done. And he was greatly perplexed. He was confused. What in the world is going on? And he tells us what his question is. He was greatly perplexed because it was said by some that John the Baptist had risen from the dead. He just had John the Baptist killed, and then months and months go by maybe of more miracles. Or maybe it was recently that a miracle just happened, and there's somebody out there doing miracles. So Herod the Tetrarch, who's supposed to know everything of what's going on in his jurisdiction, he's confused about all these miracles happening in this preacher man from Nazareth. Verse 9, Herod said, I myself had John beheaded. I had him killed. But who is this man? There it is. Underline that question. Who is this man? Who is this man about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see him. He kept trying to see Jesus. I want to see this man. Who is this man? If you go to Mark 6 and Matthew 14, you read a longer account of this very passage right here. 
And not only did John, uh, or not only did Herod the Tetrarch ask the question, who is this man? Who is this man from Nazareth? He gave his own suggestion of an answer. He suggested that it was John the Baptist risen from the dead. So maybe he started that conspiracy theory for a purpose. Which didn't make sense because John the Baptist never did any miracles, not one. So we don't know why he said that, but this is legitimate in verse 9. Who is this man? That is the most important question in our lives, isn't it? That is the most important question in the history of the universe. That is the most important question until Jesus comes again. Who is this man? Who is Jesus? Every soul that comes into this world someday is going to literally bow the knee to God on the last breath of their life, and they're going to have to answer the question, who is this man? And it's going to come in the form from the triune God himself saying, who did you say that I am? Tell me of what you thought of Christ. That determines your fate for all eternity. It's the most important question. People try to smother that question, hide that question, ignore that question, twist that question, and give wrong answers to that question. Uh, This is not... uh, Uncommon for Luke to ask that question. Look, just I'll take you to a couple of verses that really this is the most important question for Luke when he wrote his book. I would even say that he wrote his entire 24 chapters around answering the question, who is this man? Luke wrote to answer the question, who is Jesus? We know that from chapter 1, verse 1 and following where Theophilus had the question about who is Jesus? And everything Luke is doing is to give Theophilus a very specific answer. Theophilus, I'll tell you, I know you're asking, you want to know who Jesus is? You want to know why some of his apostles have already given their life for Jesus? I'll tell you why. And Luke goes on for 24 chapters. This is why. So look at some of Luke's uh, writing where he, he has different people asking this question and he incorporates it in his gospel. First one is in chapter 5, verse 21, just by way of reminder. Luke chapter 5, the scribes and the Pharisees uh, are together. Jesus was in the cities. Uh, There's a man covered with leprosy in Luke chapter 5, verse 12. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and implored him, make me, make me clean. And uh, Jesus said, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left the man and he ordered uh, him to go and tell no one and go see the priest. And the news about him, verse 15, uh, was spreading even farther, and large crowds were gathering to hear Jesus and to be healed of their sicknesses, but Jesus would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. Verse 17, and one day he was teaching, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there. This was a plant, probably. See if they can stump the chump kind of thing. They were threatened. They knew who Jesus was, or they had heard about his reputation. He was disrupting the establishment. They didn't like it. Jesus was a threat to the Pharisees and teachers of the law. They were sitting there. They had come, get this, from every village of Galilee and Judea. I mean, this must have been a massive crowd of Pharisees and scribes, not just a handful. This was a a posse, and they were antagonistic to, to Jesus. It was probably just so blatantly obvious. It's a setup, subterfuge. And so they're sitting there listening to Jesus' teaching. They'd come from every conceivable village of Galilee and Judea, all the way from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present with Jesus to perform healing. And some men were carrying this man on a bed. They uh, disrupt the Bible study. They bring the man to Jesus. Verse 20, seeing their faith, Jesus said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. So this man can't even walk. And instead of healing the man, Jesus says, Your sins are forgiven. Oh, boy. Verse 21, the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this 
man. There it is, same question. In other words, who does he think he is? But at the same time, it was, who is this Jesus of Nazareth? They didn't know who he was in terms of his true identity. In other words, they didn't know, they didn't believe that he was sent by Yahweh in fulfillment of the Old Testament. Who is this man? And they add, who, who speaks blasphemies? Who is this man? Then flip over to chapter 7, verse 20. Luke brings it up again. Uh, the disciples, verse 18 of John the Baptist, came to him. John the Baptist was in prison, sitting there probably for months on end. And then John began to have doubts. John the Baptist probably isolated all alone. Wow, this isn't the way it was supposed to pan out. I thought Jesus was coming to establish the kingdom. Where's all the glitz and the glory? It ain't happening. And here I am still in jail. The right-hand man. So he had questions. He sends his messengers to Jesus, and here's the question, verse 19. John has a question. John the Baptist had a question. Are you the expected one? Here, John the Baptist has been preaching for six-plus months that Jesus is the Messiah, and all of a sudden, John is starting to second-guess and say, are you the Messiah? In other words, John is saying, he just paused for a moment. Who is this man? Who really is Jesus? So it's not just evil people like the scribes and Pharisees asking this question, or Herod, who is this man? John the Baptist, his own cousin, who is this man? Are you the expected one? Go to verse 49 in the same chapter, chapter 7. He goes to uh, the house of a Pharisee, verse 39, probably to have lunch. There are other Pharisees there, no doubt. The one hosting is a Pharisee named Simon. He goes in there, has lunch. Then uh, there's a woman who invades the lunch party, apparently, and then she begins to water and clean Jesus's feet and wash his feet with her tears and Jesus doesn't push her away and Jesus doesn't say get your dirty filthy hands off me you adulterous sickly woman as a matter of fact he welcomes it he blesses her he commends her and Simon and all the Pharisees are just absolutely disgusted and they're thinking well who's this Jesus think he is if he really was who he said he was if he really was a man of God if he really was the Messiah he would know that that woman is filthy dirty and disgusting and he wouldn't even let him her near him and that Spawns this question, verse 49. Those who were reclining at the table with Jesus began to say to themselves, they're whispering, pss, 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 talking behind Jesus' back right in front of his back. <laughs> and what were they saying? Who is this man? In other words, translation, who does he think he is? But still at the same time, who is this man? They don't know. They had thought they had it figured out. And then chapter 8, verse 25, we saw this recently. Um, when the disciple Jesus did a miracle on the boat on the Sea of Galilee, and he calmed the storms instantaneously with the word, Be still! And the storm stopped, and instead of celebrating the apostles or the disciples on the boat, they didn't celebrate, they just had one question, verse 25. Who then is this? Who is this man? This was the disciples of Jesus. Two years into the ministry, they still haven't figured out who Jesus is. Then we've got chapter 9, where Herod asked the same question, who is this man? He legitimately didn't know. Then Luke chapter 9, verse 19, go a few verses further. Uh, verse 18, and it happened that while Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he questioned them, saying, so Jesus is going to ask, you know, everybody's asking, who am I, who am I? That's a good question. I'm going to ask it myself. Verse 18, so Jesus looks probably at his apostles and disciples, and he says, who do people say that I am? So he's kind of putting his finger up in the air at a barometer. Okay, I've been doing public ministry for two-plus years now. You guys are out as my representatives. People talk to you. You're in the corners and all over the place. What's, what's the buzz? What's the grapevine? What's the word on the street? 
Who do people say that I am? And here was the answer from the disciples, which was accurate because this is what people were saying. Verse 19. Well, they answered and said, well, some people say John the Baptist. You know who started that rumor? Probably Herod the Tetrarch. And it was getting around. Probably John the Baptist. And others are saying Elijah because he does miracles. But he wasn't John the Baptist. Strike one. He wasn't Elijah. Strike two. But others that one of the prophets of old has risen again. Hey, maybe, maybe you're Moses, reincarnate, or one of the other prophets, strike three. These are, these are people who have seen his ministry. These are people who have been listening to his teaching for two years. These are people who are called his disciples. That's the feedback. Nobody's getting it right. That's a good reminder. We can just tell people time and time again, over and over and over, and just keep repeating ad infinitum, who Jesus is, and then when we hear them echo it back, no, you still don't get it. No, that's not who he is. No, he wasn't just a, a prophet. He wasn't just a good teacher. He wasn't a, a social worker. No, he wasn't a philanthropist. No, he wasn't a revolutionary. No, he didn't come to bring economic liberty. No, no, he wasn't a do-gooder. No, that's not, no, he wasn't just a moral teacher. No, no, that's not who he was. Why do you keep saying that? He is God. He's the God-man. He's the judge of the earth. He created every human being. He's the only savior of the world. That's who Jesus is. So Jesus poses the question, who do people say that I am? Okay, all right. That's what everybody's saying. Uh, here, I, I grew up in Galilee. We've been preaching for two years. We've hit over 200 towns and villages, and you guys have been helping me. And what's the answer and feedback we get? Nobody's got it right. They don't know who Jesus is. Well, then he says, verse 20, okay, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. Actually, Matthew says, Peter said, you are Christ, the son of the living God. That was after two plus years of Peter being with Jesus, interfacing with him. And then Jesus said, you got it right. And you didn't come up with that on your own. The spirit of God, the father himself told you to say that, Peter. He revealed that to you. That was direct revelation. Direct revelation. That's how somebody comes to know who Jesus truly is. It's not our arguments. It's not our, our wisdom and our clever disputes. It's not bantering back and forth. It's not manipulation or anything like that. It takes a supernatural act of Almighty God to penetrate that person's mind and their soul, to cut through their own sinfulness that blinds their mind and also satanic blindness that blinds their mind from the gospel. So it takes God working through his spirit, through the message of the gospel, his living word, and some courageous Christian who's willing to open up their mouth and proclaim that gospel. That's what God uses to penetrate a fallen, hardened heart. And that's the only way. It's not intuition. Uh, it's not through education. It's not through experience. It's not through mysticism. It is the revelation of Almighty God working on the hearts of people personally. Through, through us vessels who proclaim the gospel as he uses his living word. So those are just some of the folks that asked the question. Um, and then we get to the end of his ministry. And in Luke chapter 20, verse 2, you got the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. They ask the same thing. Who are you? Who are you? Who do you think you are? And then the last week of his life, as he's on trial, the Sanhedrin arrested him. Again, in another one of those kangaroo courts. All 70 of them, as far as we know, in the middle of the night, having an illegitimate, illegal trial that nobody knows about. 
as they're pummeling him, stripping him, spitting on him, mocking him. And they throw out a question because it is an interrogation. It is a trial. And their question is Luke twenty two seventy. The Sanhedrin asked him, are you the son of God? Who are you? Who are? Actually, they asked him two things. Are you the king and are you the son of God? Are you the son of man? Are you the son of God? Are you the son of God? And Jesus actually said, yeah, I am. What is son of God? When you hear son of God, you think deity. When you think son of God, that phrase means uh, God in human flesh. Son of God, used by the four gospel writers, means deity. It is God. You are God. We are sons of God by faith. But that title reserved for Jesus means he is deity. That's why it was so offensive. That's why when Jesus said, I am the son of God, they accused him of blasphemy, for he claims to be equal with God. And they asked him, so do you think you are the son of God? And he said, yes, I am. Did Jesus ever explicitly claim to be deity and God? Yes, he did. I am God. I am the son of God. And then finally, before Pilate in Luke 23, Pilate doesn't know anything. Pilate is a pagan. He is a Roman. He's not involved in Jewish religion. It may very well be he hasn't heard anything, a whole lot about the details of Jesus' three-and-a-half-year ministry. This just gets thrown in his lap because he's the governor in that area on behalf of the Roman emperor, Tiberius, whoever it was. And he's wondering, why are these upset Jews from Jerusalem bringing this guy from Nazareth, the carpenter, to me? And they want him dead? Where's the evidence? There is no evidence. Six times, I think it was, at least, where Pilate said, or several times, he said, I find no fault in him. I find no fault in him. I, in other words, he is not guilty. But he did interrogate him a few times because he had to. He was being pressured, and Pilate finally asked him, so are you the king of the Jews? Are you, the king? you know what that question is. It's who are you? Who is this man? Who are you, Jesus? Pilate didn't know. Are you the king of the Jews? Who are you? What's everybody all upset about? His wife, Pilate's wife, knew. An angel told her, don't mess with this man. You know who else knew? Get this. And we see them many times throughout the Gospels over and over again, interacting with Jesus, talking to Jesus. And they never ask Jesus, who are you? Because they know 100% of the time. The demons. They know who Jesus every single time, and they call him by appropriate biblical titles of dignitary. And you are the son of God. Leave us alone, son of David. Leave us alone. So they knew exactly who Jesus was. Satan knows. The demons know. And even some of Jesus' disciples didn't get Even at the Last Supper, Philip, you still don't know who I am? Really? After all this time? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And then God in his grace, but he has to reveal that to people, who he is. Remember when he died on the cross? And he was, he was on the cross, by the way, hanging on the cross for six hours. Seven recorded statements in the four Gospels of what Jesus said during those six hours. He probably said more than seven statements. He's between two criminals who deserve to be executed. The two thieves on the cross. But just before he died, one of them, the other one's mocking Jesus, and the other one finally cries, feels convicted. He sees what's going on. He sees the interchange between Jesus from the cross, granting forgiveness for the people who killed him, showing nothing but selfless care for his mother and John the Apostle at the foot of the cross. He cares about everybody else except himself. Who is this man? People are quoting, mockers are quoting Psalm 22 and other psalms at him. Oh, you call yourself the Messiah? So this thief on the cross, he's getting a full-blown sermon about who Jesus is, of some Christology. 
And he finally gets enough information from Almighty God that God reveals to the thief on the cross the true identity of Jesus is. The beginning of the crucifixion, the thief on the cross was, who are you? The end of the six hours, he cries out to Jesus, calls him by name, and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He concluded that Jesus is king, not just of Jerusalem, not just of Israel, king of the universe, king of life. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. When I die, Jesus, welcome me as God, as judge. And what did Jesus say to that thief? Truly, truly, I say to you, this day you will be with me in paradise, going straight to heaven, thief on the cross, Direct revelation from God, opening up his heart, softening his heart, removing sinful blindness, satanic blindness, giving good news about the identity of who Jesus Christ, by grace, through faith, recognizing his sin, embracing Jesus as Savior, without doing any human works, didn't get baptized, couldn't do any works. He was nailed to a cross and saved by grace. That's one of the greatest illustrations of the mercy of God, the grace of God, and the simplicity of the gospel that we embrace by faith that turns a sinner into a saint for all eternity. Amen. Amen. Let's finish this right here. Going back to Luke 9. So Herod asked that question, who is this man about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see him. And Jesus did not grant him an audience. Jesus didn't give him an audience. And if you go to Mark chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 14, you can see the rest of the details there. Jesus hears about this incident, and then he has to get away. No doubt to to mourn, to grieve, to pray to the Father, to be ministered to by the Father, to overcome this. Jesus was 100% God, but he was also 100% man, and he had the full gamut of emotions. His emotions were perfectly sensitive and in tune with the incidents that happen in life. So when it was a time to grieve, Jesus grieved better than anyone. Jesus, Jesus grieved to the fullness like none of us could over the loss of a beloved brother. And no doubt that's what happened with John the Baptist. We know that he wept over Lazarus' death just by the simple fact that Lazarus died, even though Jesus probably knew, I'm going to raise him again in four days. And he still wept over his death. That's the heart of Christ. Well, with that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. But first, just a reminder to anyone out there, In a a crowd this big, no doubt, maybe there is somebody who's still asking the question, who is Jesus? Maybe you came to church this Sunday and you thought you knew who Jesus was. That happens all the time. If you live in America, that's very easy to happen, right? Everybody's talking about Jesus has a version of Jesus and they're giving the wrong answer. That is satanic, actually. That's a satanic point to just... Pump out all the information of giving a a pseudo-Christ to distract people and smother the truth out in all these various options of a false Jesus. That is everywhere. I'm reminded of uh, every Christmas and Easter when these magazines come out at Safeway and supermarkets. Time Magazine, Newsweek. They do it every year and they ask the same question. Who is Jesus? This one most recently that I picked up, the unknown Jesus. The unknown Jesus. My wife hates it when I buy these. You have 20 of those. You do this every year. What are you doing? 
I want to see if they finally changed their answer and got it right. Well, this is the most recent one, 2020. Uh, disappointingly, no, 2021, February 20th. They didn't get it right. They didn't change the answer all the way back to 1979 when they started doing this. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And the problem is they asked liberal theologians who don't believe in Jesus. And they also, they don't use the Bible. The gospel. The only source for finding out who Jesus truly is, is the Bible. I'll say it again. The only reliable source of truth about Jesus is the Bible. Amen. Don't think, people that come and say, oh, no, you can find out truth about Jesus elsewhere in Josephus and Tacitus and blah, 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 blah. No, you can't blah, blah. <laughs> uh, Josephus was reliable with his two passages on the New Testament and word that he heard. And if it's inconsistent with the Bible, it's wrong. And if it's consistent with the Bible, it is superfluous. No, not Josephus. Only the Bible is where we learn about Jesus. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.